0: welcome everybody this is uh the wings over new zealand show uh i'm your host dave homewood and joining me today is don sims welcome don g'day
1: dave and everyone out there how are you good thank you
0: good um now don is the moderator on the wings over new zealand forum and uh uh, he's also very well known as a man who is very interested in skyhawks particularly rnzf skyhawks um we're going to delve into that a little later, but first, Don, uh, can you give me a bit of your background and interest in aviation?
1: Oh, well, I guess it started when I was a kid. I um, was yeah, always interested in the Air Force and airplanes, and growing up, uh, my uncle was in the Air Force as a navigator, so I used to hear yeah, what he was up to and uh, visit them at Wigram and Fenerapai during the school holidays. Um, and then I joined the ATC in Invercay where I grew up in um, 1979, as a 13-year-old and, and went right through the ADC uh, until I left school and joined the Air Force in 1984. So that really cemented my interest in military aviation especially. Um, right. But it, it's, there's a, yeah, it's certainly a family um, sort of history and, and linked to aviation going right back uh, through. Many different members of the family have been in the Air Force or been associated with aviation. I've had uncles uh, worked for NAC in New Zealand as well as another uncle who was in the Air Force.
0: Right, okay. My
1: mother has uh, a saying that when we were kids, we could never drive past an airport. <laughs> we always had to call and never look. So. <laughs> and, and even today, mum says we still can't drive past an airport, her and dad. They've they become as much lovers of aviation, I guess, as I am. So. Oh, that's good. They've both, uh, both been working in it in the last few years as well.
0: Right, okay. Um, so when you joined up, you, um, you became an avionics uh, technician. Yep. Um, can you tell for the listeners out there who don't really know what that is, uh, just a little bit of background of avionics?
1: Yep, so avionics stands for aviation electronics. Um, so it was a sort of conglomeration of trades that used to be separated in the Air Force electrical instruments, radio, radar, ground comms, and they conglomerated it all into one trade in the sort of late 70s called avionics. So when I joined in 1984, that, that was it, you joined as avionics.
0: Uh, and why did you particularly choose that uh, stream?
1: Uh, well, like a lot of people I suspect, I wanted to be a pilot, so that um, was what I wanted to be And uh, but when I was in the seventh forms in the year before I joined the Air Force I got uh, glasses so at that time you just could not join any of the air crew trades if you wore glasses, so that immediately excluded me from that. Yeah. So I had to sort of look for something else and the recruiter sort of suggested avionics and in one of the school holidays, I went on an avionics appreciation course through the ATC, which was held at Wigram at Two TDS for a week. Okay. And so that gave me a really an insight, and then sort of triggered off an interest in it. So right. I joined up uh, in 1984 uh, in, in the avionics trade, um, but as well doing the NZTE scheme, CT scheme.
0: Right. Right. Uh, over the, um, the the long career that you, you had, which was up till two thousand and one, wasn't it? Yep. Um, you um, you must have seen a few changes in the avionics, I guess.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. The technology certainly changed. Um, when I, I joined, uh, yeah. I guess the Air Force. Most of the aircraft at that time was still pretty original with the avionics fit that they came with. So, the the Orion, Skyhawk, Andovers, um, Friendships, Now they. They were pretty much fitted out as they were delivered in the 60s 70s um so yeah there was a number of projects kicking off um, rigel being the orion upgrade was sort of the first one that was just kicking off just after i joined up yeah and then the skyhawk avionics upgrade kicked off shortly after so yeah i saw the transition of that original old 1960s 70s technology into the i guess the 90s technology digital so it went from analog digital Uh, in that period I was there. Uh, Even personal PC type computers were going through that same transition when I first uh, went to Two Squadron in 1988 Two Squadron had some of the very first um, IBM 286 computers in New Zealand what a a big thing it was it was like one computer for the whole squadron (laughs) there was a booking sheet to use it (laughs) I think what it's like now that everyone's got a computer or a laptop but to be part of that sort of period where it was transitioning and just being introduced was certainly interesting
0: yeah I'll bet Okay, and um, so what was your first uh, squadron posting
1: Uh, that was after mechanics course in 1985 I was posted to Hobsonville on 3 squadron right uh, onto helicopters Um, it wasn't my my choice to go to Auckland uh, during during your mechanics course you all put down the base that you wanted to be Two, and my choice as a hacker, I wanted to go there and be part of the, the jets. Um, yep. And I was the only one on my mix course that didn't get what I wanted. So <laughs>
0: okay.
1: I got sent to Auckland and then um, to Hobsonville and Three squadron but as it turned out, it was actually fantastic. I really enjoyed it.
0: Okay. Um, well, tell, tell me a little bit uh, a bit about the avionics on the Iroquois then.
1: Uh, pretty much as it is today, still uh, pretty basic basically the original avionics so apart from probably new radios but, um, just basic pedostatic instruments and electrical systems on the aircraft um, yeah. basic radios VHF, UHF HF and basic real basic aid equipment like um, ADF So no GPS or anything like that in those days when I was on three squadron in 1985 yeah. um, and there was also the SU and the WASP helicopters there as well although we didn't work on the WASPs so though flight was a separate unit, so they did all their own work. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, it was pretty 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 basic airplane, both the Sioux and the Aero in terms of its avionics fit. Yeah. But it was good for a mechanic like me This posting um, I knew nothing, so it was a good aeroplane to start out on out on learning, learning the trade.
0: Right. And, and was the squadron itself quite a good squadron to be on?
1: Oh fantastic, yeah. It was at Hobsonville at that stage, so Hobby was a fantastic base, um, quite separate from Penrith
2: yep.
1: um, And it was its own little um, empire, I suppose you could call it. But it was was a real fun social base. Everyone got on well, and, and we always thought we had something better, very special and, and better than what Penrith had. Of, <laughs> it appeared to me um, the mess, for example, Eamons' mess was uh, was far better than the Penrith one. You could uh, go in there on the weekend and it order what you wanted off a menu rather than just getting served up and whatever they felt like cooking, which is what you got at most of the other messes in the Air Force. Yeah,
0: exactly. It was
1: small and you know, everyone got on. It was really great. Right.
0: And did you go on any exercises with the helicopters?
1: The only one I went on was black, exercise Blackbird down at Dip Flat during the winter.
0: Right, right. What was that like?
1: Ah, yeah, middle of winter, freezing cold. But it was my first deployment um, exercise, so it was, again, good, great fun. Um, there was a lot of other deployments and that going on at the time, but because of the only mechanic, generally mechanics didn't go on the deployments because we were too inexperienced. Yep. Um, at that time we were still sending uh, Iroquois people to the Sinai, um, okay. and, and we also, while I was at 3 Squadron, um, sent the first Iroquois to the Antarctic, um, so that was interesting because I was involved with preparing that to go to the Antarctic, the aircraft was and repainted in its orange colours and it got nicknamed Orange Ruffy. Yep. And um, we had to um, put a radar altimeter to the aircraft because the Iroquois didn't have a radar altimeter so that was the first one and I was involved with that so that was good.
2: Yep. Okay.
1: Um, and yeah, the, and the guys that were going down to support the aircraft through the summer season, you know, I was involved in helping get them prepared to go with the pack-up. We had to build up special snowproof, waterproof boxes to put all the gear in having to make those up and seal them up.
2: Yep, yep.
1: Uh, one of the well, interesting experiences while I was on 3 Squadron was seeing a Sioux crash right outside the Hobsonville hangar. Wow. The pilot, uh, Chuck was his nickname, uh, he was doing uh, conversion course on the Sioux and doing torque turns. Um, and he misjudged it, got it all cocked up, and ended up bellying the aircraft in very hard and heavy, you know, turning it over end for end. I saw the whole thing happen, I was sort of watching out the window when it happened. Wow. I just grabbed the fire extinguisher from the avionics bay and sprinted straight over to the aircraft and was one of the first people to get there. But by the time we got there, he was unstrapped and out and hobbling away with a very sore leg. And there was a small fire burning from the fuel that had leaked out and, and ignited on the exhaust. Um, but because the pilot was out, we weren't too worried about getting in there and putting out because the fire engine from the Fire Station. Was
0: there virtually at the same time so we left that part of it to them but yeah that was a an interesting experience seeing that happen and we were certainly fortunate that got out of it and got away with it yeah i bet yeah wow and what about um among the uh the pilots and and crew uh, air crew was there sort of any notable personalities um on the squadron at the time oh, yeah
1: steve bones stands out but there was probably others you know, yep. it's, it's a long time ago now, you know, yeah. But certainly the the air crew were great great bunch, and, and if you wanted to go flying, you know, virtually any time you could right. basically just put your name in and go for a fly with them with whatever they were doing in the local area. Because I was you know, pretty keen on flying. So I took that opportunity every time chance it came up, so and they were quite often looking for volunteers to to be winched up and down and do um, under loads and that sort of thing so it was good to, to get that experience flying with them
0: as well. Right okay. And if they
1: went to any air shows they were always looking for volunteers to go and I've always been keen on that so it was quite a few good trips with them away for weekends and
0: that. Right okay. And, and so from there you went um, back to the TDS and did your text course. Yep. And then you were posted to, uh, was it Hakea?
1: Yep I was and again at the end of text course everyone put their bases that they wanted to get posted down, and I put a Ahaki thinking, oh, well, I'll get my way this time. But when the uh, signal came back, was saying wherever I was going. Again, I was the only one that didn't get the base that I wanted, and they were going to post me at Woodburn. Oh. Which, yeah, wasn't happy about at all, considering I was the only one who didn't get my Met's course posting. Yeah. But one of the um, other people on our text course, actually, is the only girl on our text course, Diane Osborne, she had been posted to a hockey and didn't want to go to a hockey so... We ended up didn't didn't exchange, swap. All right. So I ended up not going to Woodburn and going to where I wanted at a <laughs> Well, that's lucky. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> Other,
0: otherwise, these days you wouldn't be skyhawked on.
1: Well, yeah, maybe. I, you know, I did sort of think about that later and thought, well, I probably still would have got involved with Project Car but it would have been anyway because it all at that time that it was just staying off. So Right,
0: right, right.
1: It may not have been on the flying squadrons, but probably would have been involved somewhere along the way with it.
0: Right, right. And so what was the first squadron that you went to at um, Uh
1: Two squadrons. Uh, it was actually in 1987 because I did two NZC block courses um, after a text course at CIT in Wellington.
2: So yep.
1: after the first one of those in about May 1987, I was posted to Ahakia. and yeah, it was lucky enough to be posted onto two squadrons. So
0: Right, okay.
1: At that point, 2 Squadron just had the pre K Skyhaul. Yep. So I got to um, work on that for a few months before I went back to Wellington to complete my last block course for the NZCE scheme. Um, and then back to Ahakia after that. But unfortunately, didn't get go, to go back to 2 Squadron like I wanted. Um, I was posted into the avionics squadron, into the electrical section, electrical oh. bay.
2: Okay, yep,
1: yep. But, you no, know, having I mean, Done that. You know, worked on Skyhawk and Strike Master electrical components, like the generators and inverters and voltage regulators and various other bits and pieces out of the aircraft.
0: Right. Okay. So, how long were you on the um, uh, maintenance squadron before you got back to a... uh, I
1: was there for about two years, I suppose. Okay. Yeah, and I was promoted to corporal while I was there. But that was, again, looking back on it, was actually a great experience because I got to see a different side of the Haki and the Air Force. And at the time, the car upgrade was continuing to you know, progress. The prototypes were getting built at Woodburn. Yep. Um, and we were getting involved in the bays because we were going to have to maintain all the equipment as it, as it came along. So I started you know, to, to pick up and learn bits and pieces of it as we went along. Um, One of the things that we were looking after in the bay was the CFG or constant frequency generator which was the new electrical generator for the Skyhawks which was purchased before Kahu but was fitted to the pre-Kahu aircraft Um, and and we had uh, heaps of trouble with that and and got quite heavily involved in trying to sort that out Um, and in the end in uh, 1990 I actually got to go to the States on a factory um, maintenance course on the CFG. OK. So that was a you know, nice reward for all the hard work earlier.
0: Yeah, I'll bet.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was still you know, wanting to get back on squadron in particular. That uh, was Skyhawk squadron, so I kept badgering the avionics warrant officer about it, and he kept promising, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually uh, he says there's a slot coming up at two squadron with all the new Kahu aircraft about to arrive, did I want to go to two squadron? So, of course, I said yes. Okay. basically went to two squadron in, I think, 1989, just as the first of the Kahu prototypes, 05 and 54, arrived at a back at Ahakea from, from Woodburn. Yep. And then we did the Kahu test flight program over the next six to six months to a year. So I was you know, really involved in that, and that was fantastic. You know, learnt heaps about the Kahu system and the Skyhawk um, systems, how they work through that. And which, which, you know, gave me a real good grounding for, for later on, working on skyhooks on two engine five squadron operationally.
0: Yep, yep. I, I guess uh, from the avionics perspective, it must have been like working on an entirely new aircraft.
1: Oh, uh, it was. Yeah, it was very little that was original. The systems were so new, uh, such such a, a leap in technology for the pilots and avionics. It was, it was hugely. And then, you know, at the time in 1989, 1990, that Kahu kit was uh, the, the most advanced Never attack system in any aircraft in the world. It was really leading edge, cutting edge.
2: Yes, yeah.
1: And um, yeah, we, we were developing it and testing it. But in those early days, it, it had a lot of bugs and problems. It took you know, quite a long time through the test flight program to sort the software issues out and, and to fix it um, to get it into you know. Operationally, into how it you know, turned out sort of in the, through the 90s. You know, Big success, but it, it certainly had its issues in the early days, as these sort of projects tend to have. Yes. But we resolved them and, and fixed nearly all of them. the odd issue that still sort of niggled in the background right through the Skyhawks post cargo career, but they weren't major things. Right. Things like overheating of some of the avionics components just because they're. Where it was put in the in the aircraft and there was no cooling air conditioning units like other aircraft like f-16 have for cooling their avionics we just didn't have that in the skyhawk so overheating was always a problem and there was no way to solve it unfortunately
0: right okay uh, so um the squadron was testing kahu uh, but you obviously was must have been still training uh new pilots at the same time were you
1: uh, uh, yeah. Initially, we were only doing test flying, and they basically stopped doing Kahu. Our conver- uh, Skyhawk conversion courses either pre-Kahu, dinosaur Skyhawks, or the didn't start the post-Kahu one until I suppose 1990 was probably the first conversion course on the Kahoo aircraft. Oh, okay. So there's so we did just test flying initially, but we only initially had two aircraft, zero five and fifty four, and then gradually we got fifty five and fifty the T-Birds were sort of the first through the production line because they needed the T-Birds to do the conversion training Yeah. Um, and then gradually we got sort of up to six aircraft I think at one stage um, and started doing some conversion courses and that was about the time Kiwi Red 1990 was uh, doing uh, their aerobatic displays and they were using the pre-Kahu aircraft but after the mid-air collision of uh, 10 and 11 they only had six pre-Kahu aircraft left at a Ahakea, so Gary Red had to start borrowing some of our Kahu aircraft to do, do their displays. So we had to run a quick conversion course for a couple of pilots, basically enough to teach them how to fly the aircraft using the HUD and not have to worry about anything else, just safely fly the aircraft. Right. And that was a bit of a disruption to our test flying and conversion courses because we were all of a sudden two aircraft down. 75 didn't have any people who could maintain the aircraft, so we were having to do it for them. Yeah. So the aircraft would get fixed overnight by us, towed down to 75 Squadron in the morning, flown, broken, sent back to us at night to fix. <laughs> 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 it got quite frustrating. <laughs> wow.
0: I and mean, that's just another um, sort of symptom of, of, of having too little aircraft in the Air Force, really. Yeah, isn't well, at
1: that time we were in that transition. You know, the aircraft were going from 75 Squadron to Woodburn to get converted so I think there was probably six to eight aircraft at Woodburn at any one time going through the Kahoo production line which only left for the half a dozen of the Haki had not converted and then another half dozen that had been done so yeah it was a, a difficult period and we were trying to get the Kahoo aircraft operational fix all the bugs and keep in the meantime we were wanting to pinch, pinch aircraft and we had our various other problems with uh, engine problems, and which you know, reduced our available pool of aircraft. At one stage, we sort of had one or two aircraft to do the two-squadron flying, and we were just flying the aircraft virtually non-stop. They were doing hot refuels with the pilot remaining strapped in, and then we'd go off on another flight without him getting out of the cockpit. Wow. And we were having to configure the aircraft for different test uh, flights, uh, especially with the weapon delivery. They were testing different um, software configurations. So, the software would have to be loaded into the aircraft before a flight, the new software, and then the weapons would be loaded up. The aircraft would go and drop its dummy bombs or practice bombs, do, of course, rockets and fire its guns, and then they'd come back, analyse all the results. Overnight, they'd make an adjustment to so the software. You'd have to load it back into the computers the next morning Where they'd go and do it again. And that was you know, going on for m- months and months. Um, mm-hmm. Ian Gore was the CEO. 75 at that time, and he did you know, most of that weapon delivery software um, tweaking, and he did a, you know, an amazing job, and uh, he got the Air Force Cross awarded to him for his, his efforts there, right. but you know, he wasn't happy unless it was perfect, and you know, he managed to get the, the weapon delivery software ac- so accurate that it, it really was good.
0: Yes, Yeah. Uh, and I guess at that time, so um, 2 Squadron wasn't really doing much in the way of exercises? or all, all No, we,
1: we didn't, although in ninth February 1990, I think it was, the Australians came over with the F-18s, a squadron of them, and at that stage, 75 Squadron was doing Kiwi Red and nothing else. You know, they weren't operational. as was in a fighter attack unit. They were just doing Kiwi Red. So it was 2 Squadron that hosted the F-18s yeah. for this fleet. Uh, concentration exercise with the navy, and that was sort of our first real exercise. So yeah, we were busy because we were doing Carhu test flights, and amongst the actual taskings, day and night sorties for the, the um, fleet support. But it was fun. It was a huge time. Um, I remember some very long days and nights. Was, um, yeah, hectic two night shifts and kegs of beer, and, and the Aussies just couldn't believe it. They, They had a ball with us as well, and at the end of the exercise, they presented us with this great big gold medal for outstanding hospitality. Oh, right. Yeah, it was fun. (laughs) Hard work, but fun.
0: You must have been really grateful that um, Kiwi Red had taken the other squadron away.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, Kiwi Red, they were off doing that, and they were quite pissed off because they could see (laughs) we were getting all the limelight with the Aussies and having a great great deal of fun shooting down F-18s and attacking ships and poor old two pilots that all they were allowed to do was go and do formation aerobatics they really wanted to be part of what we were doing but they just weren't allowed so for two squadron, we we gave 75 shit because we thought we were now the prima donnas and we were the operational squadron and they weren't (laughs) so there was a lot of inter-rivalry between the two (laughs) squadrons we used to um, two squadrons flight line the um, head up display on the aircraft had an orange cover over it when it was on the ground and the carry Red aircraft, as they taxi past, their pilots had red helmets, kept yep. the carry Red. And as they taxi past, we'd all take the, the HUD covers off and put them on our heads as we walked around the aircraft working on them, <laughs> <laughs> just to have a dig. <laughs> of course, being very careful never to show our face so that the, the, the pilots could identify. But, <laughs> but there was a lot of robbery we used to make up stickers and put on. Picked them onto the 75 aircraft about um, 2 Squadron yeah, being better than 75.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There'd um, always been sort of in, inter squadron rivalry um, amongst the jets right back to the vampires, hadn't there? Oh, them. yeah,
1: it had been huge at a hack yeah, between 14 and 75, and then when 2 Squadron came along, you had know, three <laughs> squadrons all you know, with big egos and all, you know, thought that they were the best squadron. Yeah, and there used to be pranks pulled all the time between the squadrons, especially the pilots used to sort of be into it more than the groundies, but you know, occasionally the groundies would get involved as well. Yep, yep. And then that, you know, wasn't just at a either. It was like when 14 Squadron was on Falcon Reefs exercises around New Zealand on deployment, um, 75 would um, regularly you know, do dawn strikes on the intended camp. <laughs> um, one store I remember was one of the. Fourteen Squadron pilot was going out with one of the air traffic control girls at the here and so she um, rang the Wyzeel the camp up about five in the morning and asked to speak to her, her friend. And he answered the phone, and uh, well, they must have dragged him out of bed, I guess, because there would have been only one phone at the at camp.
2: Yeah.
1: And she says, "Oh, I'm sorry, I can't can't hear you. I'll have to call you back." 75 Squadron was just starting up and hung up. <laughs> So they they scrabbled the blunties and um, were all in the air, ready to bounce them as they attacked the wherever River, I think it was down at Westport or somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it was that sort of rivalry went on uh, operationally as well.
0: I'm, I'm sure the sleepy little town where it was probably didn't appreciate having, you know... No, a,
1: they wouldn't have appreciated the wake-up call.
0: <laughs> <yeah. laughs> oh, fantastic.
1: And then there was, yeah, there was pretty severe rivalry between the other Air Force squadrons and the... Seventy fives and the twos and the fourteens as well, from the forties uh, and fives and three squadrons. Everyone used to have a guard each other if they got the opportunity.
0: Yep.
1: But it was all in good fun, you know, even though at times it
0: got a bit serious. Did, did they have the um, the squadron flags? Um, I know that back when the uh, the likes of the mosquitoes and the vampires were around, um, seventy five squadron had a flag and um, fourteen squadron, I think it was, had a flag, and they used to try and steal each other's flags.
1: Uh, yeah, there was there were aircrew sort of flags or banners, I guess. Two squadron sort of had a, a, a black and gold cheques flag, which I know three squadron borrowed, took out to the ramway range and then shot it up <laughs> and returned it full of bullet holes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there was that sort of thing. The unofficial squadron standards, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, did the 2 Squadron have any mascots? Uh, not that I
1: can remember. No, I don't think
0: they did. No. Uh, no, what, we used to
1: just, like everyone else, tried to punch 75 Squadron's Henry Fanshaw. I mean, he <laughs> was everyone's target. And 75 Squadron guarded them with their lives virtually, but everyone in the Air Force wanted to get Yeah. But the first time I'm aware that 2 Squadron stole them was actually in 1991, when we were in Naira. Stolen off 14 Squadron of war people, <laughs> <laughs> but 14 Squadron had a hog's head, which was a a wild boar's head mounted on a big plaque, and that and was the same It used to get pinched by wolves, all and sundry, including Australians, and they went to incredible trouble to to stop it from being stolen, and, and some people went to incredible trouble to steal it as well, <laughs> breaking into hangars in the middle of the night. Moving aircraft to get it. <laughs> it. <laughs> it's unbelievable what went on, really. Of course, in those days, there was no security alarms or anything. No. Buildings in a hacky, except probably the bomb dump. So you could get away with things like that, but you certainly wouldn't nowadays with alarm systems.
0: True, yeah. I guess um, the other thing, too, was um, uh, usually the safety and surface workers were involved where they would paint little things on the aeroplanes. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah painting. On airplanes, stencils with you know, Kiwis, you know, Roger and Ruddy Kangaroos for when the Aussies came over, if they're F11s or f Same with Strike Masters and 75s, because there was always a stencil made up for some event, yep. painted on. Usually just small ones, small ones or small stickers that got stuck in the like landing gear wells, and painted on drop tanks, things like that. Right,
0: right. Okay. Um, now, I've, I've actually read that 75 Squadrons, um, their squadron song was uh, We've Got Tonight by Bob Seger. Uh, did 2 Squadron have their own song?
1: Yeah, that was a pilot thing. Uh, grandies didn't did get into that. I mean, I I knew about the 75 Pilots one, but I never actually heard it being sung. But um, the Grandies certainly didn't get into that sort of thing. Right. A pilot thing.
0: Right. Okay, I, I know too that um, from my own experience with the three squadron guys at Wigram, their official song was uh, K-San by Cole Chisel. No. Yeah, they, they all used to sing that
1: when
0: they got on the booze. No, the pilots needed to get into some of that stuff more than us groundies did. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell me about
1: Nauru. Yeah, so I was on two squadron in, in
0: 1990 when, the first, well, in
1: 1989 the first rumours started circulating around the Hakia that the Skyhawks squadron were going to be posted and deployed to now in Australia permanently. Um, it was during an Australian F-18 squadron visit um, that the Australian 60 Minutes um, you know, the current affairs programme came across with the F-18s to, to film them exercising with the Skyhawks. We didn't know at the time, but it was, it was basically a jack-up by the 60 Minutes to get the story about or to get footage to go with the story about the Skyhawks going back to the era where they came from, where the Australian Navy operated them.
0: Oh, right.
1: And the story, when it was all edited put together, was called Skyhawk Sellout, and you know, went along the lines of, you know, "We sold these aircraft to New Zealand for twenty-eight million dollars two years ago, and now we need them back." We're going to pay you another 20 million to get them back. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually good. We, it made the Aussies look really stupid and us look really good. <laughs> <laughs> but, and especially with the Kahu aircraft, we, that was, I think, the first time the Kahu skyhawks had flown against the F Um, And yeah, we kicked their butts. We got some good HUD footage of F 18s being shot down, which we gave to the 60 Minutes crew. And of course, they put that in there. Didn't they? Aircraft that Australia didn't want shooting down their thirty million dollar F eighteen, brand new F eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was the first time it became sort of public that they were looking at sending two squadron two Nara. And Frank Sharp was CEO seventy five Squadron at the time, and he was interviewed on the Sixty Minutes program, and, and basically said as much. He says, "Yeah, within a year, eighteen months, two squadron will be in Nara."
2: Right. So
1: it was like, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, everyone that was on two squadron at the time. Yeah, <laughs> but it took quite a bit longer than everyone thought to actually, you know, to be a done deal, and for the contracts to be signed, and for the positions to actually be advertised. Uh, but yeah, I was fortunate enough to to be one of the ones that applied and was selected to go on the first deployment in February 1991. So we packed up the squadron and the Harkier and shipped most of the, the ground equipment and stuff over by sea, went over on uh, I think a navy ship. Yeah. Containers. Uh, and then the families and personnel, we all flew over on the Air Force 727 to Nara, and the Skyhawks were flown over my 75 squadron because they were doing an exercise at Williamtown um, sort of two weeks before we arrived so they just left the six Skyhawks that we were going to use at Williamtown and the pilots went up to Williamtown and flew them back to All oh, right. and then that began the ten years of two squadron.
0: Right. So, okay. yeah,
1: it was an interesting time again. It was was all new and the Kahoo upgrade was still very new technology and we were still learning our way around it. Some of the issues had not been resolved with you know, bugs in the software and software. In fact, we were still just completing the Test light Pro part of the, the whole Kahoo upgrade as we deployed to NARA. Yep. Um, we had to sort of get used to doing everything the Australian Navy way. We, a bit of a shock to the system because they just treated us like another navy unit they just saw us as a, another pool of manpower on base to be used for base duties and things like that but our CO pretty much stood up at the first briefing and said no my gods aren't going to be doing any of that crap uh, our, our boss was Steve Moore and he was a, a fantastic CO yeah. so no we were just totally focused on doing our fleet support that we were there to do and we didn't get treated to all the other stupid Navy business on base, although we still had to put up with their the way of operating, which was a little bit strange and different to us. They they treated the base like a ship. Everything was named after as if you were on a ship, like when you came through the main gate, um, was coming across the gangway, coming on board. It was just the terminology and you yeah. to get used to the Navy yeah. way there. Their discipline was pretty strict on both compared to what we were used to at here with in terms of saluting officers and you know, drinking in barracks and things like that. Some of the, the singleies that lived in barracks struggled a bit with the rules and the rooms weren't so flash that they were, they were living in. But for the ones like myself that were married, um, the Navy just didn't do enough, couldn't do enough for us. Um, we got fully furnished houses in, in town and there compared to the maricorders we were used to in Balls and the Harkia, they were palaces. And they had yeah. carpet and they had curtains, things that you know, in New Zealand just didn't have. Plus they were fully furnished and all the appliances, TVs, fridges, washing machines, everything. Oh, wow. We didn't have to take anything with us. Law everything came with the house. They had a full inventory.
0: That's fantastic.
1: And you know, we didn't have to pay rent or power or gas or phone. It was all paid for by the Australian Navy. It was, uh, quite a, um, changed to a typical r and posting, but that was the Australian way of doing it, so because we were doing things their way, that was how it was, so we didn't complain.
0: No. Well, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. But did they? Um, th- did you get, have to get involved with base parades and that sort of thing, or...? Uh,
1: again, initially they were going to get us dragged into all that, but Steve more just put his foot there and said, no, we're, we're flying 24 hours a day, basically, and going to be deploying, so guys aren't going to be available. Okay. But when we did, when there was a special parade or an Anzac Day, yes, we did parade yep. as a squadron. Um, yeah, probably two or three times a year we would actually have a parade on base or in town for Anzac Day or you know, Remembrance Service or something like that. But yeah, we didn't do much drill marching while I was there. So by the time we got back to my gear up, that posting was a bit rusty on my old drill and, We never held a rifle, did any rifle drill because we we never took any of this. Stires, I think we just got stires then. So, yeah, we we had because I hadn't touched a stire. We got back to a and got put on a parade when I got back to Harkia in 1993. And they threw a stire at me, and I went, um, what do I do with this? Because I'd never touched one. I was ever back at Hackia, had been using them for the last two or three years and knew how to use them for drill.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but yeah, no, Nara was was a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of hard work because we were the, the new boys setting the place up. It was a lot of work to set the, the facilities up at Nara, the flight line and the, the hangar and the buildings that the Navy had given us. And a lot of it was compromised. The Navy didn't have a lot of room, hangar space to give us. Uh, they the basically gave us enough room for our six Skyhawks to be packed into a small space. And that was it. So it made it really difficult didn't have enough room for all that ground support equipment in the hangar and, and at times if we were doing maintenance on one aircraft it required more room around it to work we couldn't keep all the aircraft in the hangar so we'd have another hangar all around base. It wasn't ideal um, but eventually sort of in the mid to late 1990s um, the Navy built more hangars at the and two squadron ended up getting a whole hangar to itself which yeah, was perfect. Right. Um, we did a lot of deployments in that first 12 months. We, we deployed just about every major Australian city and air force base from you know, Perth, Darwin, Townsville, Melbourne, Adelaide. Well, the only place we didn't go was Tasmania. Okay. And that was all doing fleet support flying for the Australian Navy. Yep. Because the, the Aussie Navy is basically split into two fleets: East Fleet, West. Uh, so we had to exercise both easier to fly us than bring the ships right around from the west coast Right And, and same you know, we'd go up to Darwin for some of the bigger exercises up there that the Australian Navy were involved in
0: So when when the uh, aircraft deployed to say somewhere across the country how did you guys as ground crew go? Did the RWF fly? Yeah or? the Australian Air Force were tasked by the Navy
1: with providing us Hercules but they only ever gave us one which wasn't enough for all the Personnel in the pack up for the support equipment.
2: Yeah.
1: Especially if we wanted to take the spare engine, which took up pretty much half a hook on its own. So yeah. it would often end up compromising what we'd take. We wouldn't take the spare engine and the trolley with us. We wouldn't better take all the personnel we would normally take. Um, at other times, the Navy had um, Orkestly 748 electronic warfare aircraft in their own, and they'd be usually going to the same that we were, so they had a few spare seats in them, so sometimes of they'd you know, offer us half a dozen seats in that to get there.
0: Right.
1: But that was a painfully slow way of getting to Perth or Darwin because they flew so slowly. It took sort of 12 hours to fly across narrow to Perth. Oof. It was about three stops along the way. Darn it.
0: Um,
1: uh, the Lair jets that were based at now narrow doing target-towing fleet support, occasionally, you know, they'd have a seat or two available as well. Someone was about to go on, on one of those. So we got got people to where we needed to be, but we never had quite enough Hercs. They don't ever give us one Herc, yep. which is a pain because we'd usually have to refuel once or twice on the way, somewhere like to Perth or to Darwin, to refuel on the way. And the Herc wouldn't leave now until after the Skylocks had taken off. So the Skylocks would get to Townsville, Adelaide, where they were going to refuel hours before the Hercules did with all the ground crew Oh, so a, a way of solving that problem was to put ground crew in the back seats of the two-seated Skyhawks. Yeah. So you'd, if you had two or three CTBs, which you normally did, you'd put one of each trade in the back seat. So they were there when the Skyhawk landed, obviously, because they were in them. And they'd do the refuels, do the pre-flights and pretty much have the aircraft ready to go again by the time the Herc arrived. Um, all the guys that do was roll out the GTC Huffer and power cart and ladders and chocks and start the skulks up and away they go so right. otherwise we would have yeah, it would have taken days to get where we were going if we did it that way we could still get from like now to Perth or Darwin in one day yeah. but the, the guys in the hurt, you know were the last to leave now and they'd be the last to arrive in Perth or Darwin you know, well into the night whereas if we were doing it with 75 squadron, we'd always have support one, support two, Hercules so they'd be leapfrogging ahead of the Skyhawks all the time. So when the Skyhawks arrived, there would always be a hirk with all the gear and the people ready to receive them and to do the maintenance. We just didn't have that luxury of two squawking.
0: Right, right. And when you went around the country in Australia, um, did you find that the bases you were going to, um, were people quite interested in seeing the Kiwis turn up?
1: Oh, very, yep. No, it was a novelty to see the Skyhawks back. Um, And because we'd done the car upgrade, and it was still very new, people that knew the Skyhawks were pretty keen to, to see what this new kit was. Right. So yeah, we were always well received and popular where we went, and of course we'd go back to these same places quite regularly every few months. So we got to know quite often the squadron that would host us, and we would be located, and the same people would, would deal with all the time, so it was really good.
2: Yeah.
1: We had a really good relationship with the Australian Air Force we went. We really were, within the Australian Defence Force. OK. You know, the the, the aircraft in particular were working with the Hornet and F-111 guys all the time, so, you know, operationally they got very close, you know, which was a you know, real bonus part of the whole narrow relationship. Yep. And that flowed then back into 75 squadron because those two squadron pilots would go back to 75 and already have those contacts and experience when 75 went to exercise somewhere
0: where the Australians
1: were straight away, they could integrate straight in with the Australian F-18. Right, right. Just because of that commonality
0: and, and practice of doing it with two-squadron. Right, OK. And, of course, every um, pilot that was being trained from there would, uh, from, from that time on would go to narrow as part of their training, wouldn't they?
1: Yep, so all the Skyhawk conversion training was done at Narrow by two-squadron. So all the pilots would come off 14-squadron Initially the Strike Masters and then the Mackies from about 1991 to 92, and then do their conversion yeah, onto the Skyhawk getting air. Yep. So when we would go away on deployments, they would come with us, and, and we would just carry on doing conversion flying from wherever we were. The, the the Navy tasking always took priority in terms of the aircraft, but if there was a spear aircraft, um, we'd usually make sure the spear was the T-Bird, and then. Once the other aircraft had gone off to do their tasking, the t would take off with a student in it to do some conversion flying. Because they were part of the whole deployment, they were picking up the whole operational aspect of fleet support. And and again, that was a huge benefit to them. Once they went back to 75 squadron, they'd already had exposure to operating in that environment. Yeah, yeah. Those sort of operational tasking tempos.
0: It was such a great sort of um, system wasn't it? No it
1: wasn't. It wasn't costing New Zealand a cent that was so so frustrating about it being canned because the Aussies were paying for it all and they they basically paid for all our fuel apart from when we did our own convergence line they didn't pay for that but they paid for pretty much everything else Um, and New Zealand was getting all that experience for free. Yeah.
0: And what about this um, social side of uh, living at Nauru? Did you guys get on well with the Aussie units there and the, and the just Aussie people?
1: Uh, initially, no. The, the Navy were a bit funny. We, we they didn't know how to take us. We didn't know how to take them. I think it's probably the, the, the easiest way to describe it. Um, there was tension between the Seahawk helicopter squadron that we shared the hangar with, because it was so crowded. They didn't have enough room for all the air helicopters. They had sixteen Seahawks they didn't have enough room when we arrived so they were pissed off that they had to give up a quarter of their hangar task. us yep. and, and we didn't have enough room so there was all that tension initially because of that um, and there was just yeah, things they'd do and we'd do that would piss each other off,
2: the yep. now
1: it was actually a bloody windy place, it's even worse than a hack here and you couldn't have both ends of the hangar open at once because it would just create a huge wind tunnel and it would just send everything flying paperwork, services, stand. And that was, I can remember, being a real piss-off because they'd always leave their end of the hangar open yep. and they'd be pulling out the in and out. But we were the ones that had to open and close both ends <laughs> to, to move our aircraft. And I can remember that being a, a battle at times.
2: Yep.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, you know, over time that changed. You know, even in the two and a half years I was there, it changed significantly. And, and, and by the time I left in '93, yeah, there was a huge amount of respect. Both sides for each other. Right.
0: Um,
1: and we were actually helping each other out quite a lot with bio test equipment off the mid forest stuff of us. And once we started to do that, you know, we started to realise that, hey, we can actually help each other here. Yeah. Out here and the Avionics maintenance squadron on base, we would use their facilities to do the testing of our sabi beacons and pilot fish and things like that. Yep. Um, so, yeah, as time went on, it got better and, and easier. And, um, when we first arrived, it was in the civilian community, there was a bit of uh, negativity and angst towards us because we were bringing their old aircraft back and some of those people, 700 odd Australian Navy people, were made redundant when the government got rid of their Skyhawks and Grumman trackers, yep. and some of those people were still within our community and were quite bitter that here we were back with their old aircraft doing their job, and I can remember within first couple of weeks when we were there, but we made a real effort to get out in the community and so try and socialise and say, here we are, because it was all in the media, we were here, but
2: yep.
1: we, we all went out to the, the local RSAs and pubs, and I remember being in Bombardier RSL and, and no one really would talk to us, we were all sort of in our little clicky group of Kiwis in uniform having a beer, and very few of the, the locals would come and talk to us, and then someone came over to us and said something like, so what does it feel like to be in a room full of people that hate you? You know, did dead serious was like, fuck, we don't deserve this. I come here, that I can never be here. <laughs> But But uh, that's that's how some people felt. and Yeah, there was definite animosity there for a while. But probably within six months, once they'd heard the skull flying around every day and saw them flying around, and we did a few air shows in there on open days and people you know, came out and saw us and found that bad and we were doing a good job, but the actual community just became, adopted us and just really loved us being there.
0: Right. Oh, the longer
1: that's the went on, the, the more grain to school became in the narrow community. Yeah. Yeah, you because know, everyone had a life outside of work, everyone had interests in sports or clubs or, and the people that had wives and families, so they went to schools and just the normal things that kids get involved with through sports. And Clubs, yeah. scouts and that sort of thing, and yeah, the squadron tried to have a, a few sports teams like touch rugby and rugby teams, but it was difficult because of the deployments we'd end up missing various things, but we tried, and just through that people got to know us and got to accept us. and, and I know at the end of 2001 when two squadron left to come back, it was really sad because um, the whole narrow community had adopted two squadron as its own. Yeah. Um, and you know, when I went over there for the farewell well it was really sad to see communities' sadness of them leaving.
2: They were right.
1: actually more uh, welcome there and now at Tusquadron than they were when they got back
0: to New Zealand. That was that was obvious. Right. Okay. Yeah, and so when you came back to New Zealand in ninety three you obviously went on to seventy five, was it?
1: Uh no, not initially. I came back nineteen ninety three. Uh, I got promoted to sergeant when I came back and I was posted to the avionics maintenance squadron the instrument uh, weapons bay, it was called Inst weapons so we looked after all the instruments from Skyhawk and Mackey as well as all the weapon system components that were well, even considered avionics which included the various uh well the control system, the cantometer dispensing system. Yep lead out a computer out of the aircraft. So it was a mix of the old technology and the new as well, so it was uh, was good to come from Squadron, with my experience and knowledge of that equipment and the aircraft to the bay where it was actually repaired and serviced. And prior to that, the bay hadn't had anyone there who had that Kahu knowledge, people that had never worked on the Kahu aircraft on Squadron because it was still so new. So to be able to bring that back to the bay was a huge boost to the knowledge and capability and training and an idea uh, yeah,
0: that's been two and a half years and that's today running it. How, how big was the avionics maintenance squadron? Uh
1: it was quite big in those days, I it
0: was sixty odd people.
1: Wow. In uniformed and civilian.
0: That would have been the biggest in the Air Force, would it, for Avionics? Or was there one uh, in other would
1: have been about the same. Okay. And one idea it would have been it got really nice and safety would have been probably about the same size as well ok um, and of course with all your mechanics you've constantly got mechanics coming off and going to the bays and rotating every six months yeah, there was always trainees coming through that were yep. included in that sort of 50 or 60 people right right the core would have been lost more than that probably 30 and all the other trainees and UTs that were always around yep yeah, it was good times there because, again, we were still developing better ways of doing things and maintaining the kit and learning things about it. It was all still quite new. Um, and, yeah, we didn't have a lot of spare parts, and one problem with car we never bought enough parts, and spares, and we were always having to cannibalise aircraft, cannibalise the boxes out of the aircraft to fix other boxes. And so we were, doing, we were doing a lot of that. And learning on the hoof how to fix things that probably shouldn't have been fixed but Kiwis we did.
0: Yeah, that's, that's the typical way of the D isn't it, it's not not replace, it's repair.
1: Yeah, well the concept with intermediate level maintenance, which is what, what the avionics maintenance for in was, was the squadron would pull out a box out of the aircraft, broken or suspected to be broken, take it to the avionics squadron, we'd test it, confirm if it was faulty and then. If we confirmed it was faulty, we usually sent the box somewhere else to get fixed. Um, but some people in was wisdom when they were doing the CAHOO sort of contract said, oh, well, we'd like to go a little bit further than intermediate level maintenance with CAHOO. We'd like to, they called it an extended IOM. It wasn't quite a depot level component maintenance, but it was extended IOM. And that was really clever that they put that in the contract. Because that meant we got all the circuit diagrams, and all the information on how things worked right down to component level, which we wouldn't have got otherwise. Right. Uh, because we had that source of information, we could actually fix stuff. Oh, OK. Um, and we were doing probably, in some some of the bays, a lot more repair work than probably was ever envisioned because we had that people with the skills and in the, in the information. Right. Whereas the Mackie, when that arrived, we only bought ILM capability so they didn't give us any drawings beyond that's a box wouldn't tell us show us what was in it Yeah. so no circuit diagrams, no IPVs and that was just hopeless because we couldn't do anything <laughs> it was really difficult compared to what the car was like because we had all the awesome source information. Right. So if you wanted to go down to component level you could but not with the Mac
0: so I guess that um, sort of culture of repair, repair, repair um, must have made you guys among the top avionics um, technicians that there yeah, are around. There
1: were some really smart people in avionics yeah. and, and a lot of them were really young guys that that, that came through avionics and I'm still in touch with some of them and I even actually work with some of them now yeah, outside of the Air Force. Yeah. That they, They've done extremely well for themselves in, in, the, in the electricity um, electronics industry. Yep. And that was purely through their training in the Air Force. We had fantastic training system, and um, yeah, they, the Air Force gave them, these young guys, LACs, most of the corporals, uh, gave them a, a link to rope and said, here you go, you, you see what you can do with it. And they did some amazing things with the car, who had got just maintaining it. Yeah. We had some civilians as well that were ex-Air Force flight sergeants, sergeant, who had been around a long time pre-Kahu, had a lot of experience with war pre-Kahu avionics, and then had been on a lot of training courses in the States for Kahu when we first bought it. Yep. And then they got out of the Air Force when they were 20 years up and came back in on for civilians. And they were core, key people as well, they, even though everyone else got posted in and out of the bay, they stayed there, so they were the, really the, the rock of the place. Everyone else changed around them every two or three years, but yep. they, they stayed there and that corporate knowledge stayed there.
0: Wow.
1: And there were some, uh, some great technicians and really in- interesting individuals amongst those people. Um, and I look back at you know, my time on Avion with a lot of pride in, in, in what people were doing. You know, again, we didn't buy any of the test equipment that we needed to maintain the car equipment. So the guys just built it, and instead of buying a $400,000 test set for testing the skull head-up display. Yeah. Um, one of the corporals, Russell Benson, who went on the course in Scotland on the head-up display says I can build that. So when he came back he, he designed and built a box, literally made out of a big cardboard box. He just cut holes in it, pulled switches through it, wired all up to do the testing he wanted. And for a long time, that test set was a big cardboard box mounted on a shelf with all these wires and plugs and switches hanging out of it. (laughs) And to buy the original factory one was $400,000. And and then in the end, he he built it properly, got a proper chassis case made for it, and and it looked just a million dollars. And I think it cost him $1,000 to (laughs) make. Wow,
0: wow. And when you hear the stories of um, these guys behind the scenes that are um, doing all this, they're, they're not. The guys flying the planes or maintaining the planes on the squadron. But the other guys in the background.
1: Yep, and those, a lot of those guys never actually worked on squadron ever. Yeah. They were yep. just in avionics and they, they stayed in that avionics environment, and never went to the squadrons. There was a number of them. There was another guy who worked for me in, in the instrument weapons bay, John Kobex, become a Russian. And and he when I got there he was making all the test sets for the Mackie because he'd been to Italy and done the avionics system. Yeah. and again, we didn't have enough money to buy the test sets that we needed but while he was over there, he'd taken enough information and copies and taken photos of the, the manufacturer's test sets to come back and build their own and he spent probably two years just building probably 20 different test sets for the different components we used to test and making them and he did it all properly by their, their own NZAP number to maintain the test sets, all the drawings were there of how it was made, the wiring diagrams Brilliant. Beautiful sure. jobs he made. He made a HSI test set, which is for the horizontal situation indicator in the Skyhawk. Yeah. And it was absolutely a piece of art. It was amazing. And again, to buy the test set from the manufacturer in the States was like two hundred and fifty
0: thousand US. Wow. And he built this thing for less than a thousand bucks. it's just um, it, it's infuriating when you think that when the Skyhawks and the Mackies were um, were canned all of those skilled jobs disappeared as well, wouldn't they? Yeah,
1: well, that's it. Most of those people went. Yeah. For, very few
0: of them stayed around. And, you know, they could have been doing the same job now on other um, other squadrons, other bases, but, you know, they're not, they're not going to stick around when they're...
1: No, that's right. But, I mean, I think the, the, the same sort of people are still there the young people today are still like that. Yeah. But I don't think the new projects they've got coming in—they're they're going to be allowed to. You're not going to give them. They're not giving them a rope to to let them uh, do something with it. Right. They're so constrained by bullshit, I think, to be honest. Yeah. Nowadays, that they just won't do that. They but, stifle innovation rather than letting people be innovative. Right. They're right. So tied up in the bureaucracy of airworthiness. Uh, which is fine. You need that, but I think the They've gone too far. They've stifled innovation.
2: Yeah.
1: Basically followed the Australian Air Force air weatherness model, which you know, is very restrictive. And that was always what made us different to the Australians. And when I was, in, we could innovate and do stuff like that. They could If it didn't come from the manufacturer, you weren't allowed to use it.
0: Right.
1: Uh, it was that simple. And we just didn't have the money to to do that. But we still don't. But I'm pretty sure that that, that sort of culture now is that you don't innovate you don't do everything off the, the Audi rag you, you have to use the proper test equipment from the
0: manufacturer So they're, they're quite willing to pay 400 grand for something that would have yeah, cost them a will. thousand yeah. and then they say oh we haven't got money to fly
1: <laughs> Although now you know, with all the new aircraft and new equipment they don't do any repair work themselves they just change the box out on the squadron it literally goes overseas from there, it doesn't even go back into the bays. Right. The avionics maintenance squadron in Ahakea, after the combat force was suspended, became a flight under the Auckland avionics maintenance squadron.
0: Okay. So
1: it went down to about 10 people. Right. Cause all they had to work on was a few components out of the Iroquois and Sioux helicopters. It was pretty sad, because they still had all that Kahu test equipment, the big... At level test station and APG 66 test bench in the avionics factory at A Um, it was in there for years. And it was sad because the young people coming through, the mechanics, would get posted to avionics and have to work on an old SU starter generator and you know, instruments. And sitting in the corner was this multi-million-dollar piece of test equipment that no one used anymore. Wow. Um, you know, they really went backwards and they still haven't caught up and it won't be until they get the NH90 and um, new helicopters and stuff that they'll get that next level of technology back yeah um,
2: yeah.
1: yeah it was embarrassing for air shows that I we went to one in 2003 or 2004 and they had a squad all open to the public to go through it and look and they'd had to fix the close off the end of it, which had all of the kahu test equipment the head-up display servicing bay and the radar bay, it was all big curtains up to keep the public away, <laughs> and of course I knew it was behind me, so I just had to look behind to see, out of interest, if it was all still there, and it was, it was all still sitting there. Okay. I just thought, what a bloody waste. When you looked at what the, girl, the guys had on display to show you what they did, yep. I thought, my God, <laughs> we're back in the 1940s. <laughs> to what we had.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, so tell me about when you got back onto Squadron after that posting.
1: Yeah, so I did um, my time in Avionics Squadron and then got posted to PDS with the air trainers. I wanted really wanted to go to 75 Squadron. That was my choice. And I said, yeah, I'll do my two and a half years in the bay, but I want to go back to 75, or go to 75 Squadron because i have never been on 75 Squadron. Yeah. But they had a wee problem at PDS. Needed uh, someone to go there and did a deal with me that if I went there for two years, then I could have 75. So that's what happened. I went to PDS for two years and worked on the air trainers. Right,
0: and this is out a hockey as well. Yep. yeah.
1: And that actually turned out to be really good. I, I actually really enjoyed my the time there. The air train was a bit like the Iroquois, real basic, simple aeroplane in terms of avionics and systems, but real small team and people. We had very, I think we only had about four avionics people looking after the. 18 air trainers we had at that stage flying, and this was the old CT4B model air trainers. Right, right. Um, Yeah, it was a really busy time, lots of fun, lots of wiser exercises and um, lots of flying with the red checkers and trips away, it was really good fun. Oh, great. Um, And I was there right until the end of the CT4B when they went from the B to the least CT4E. Yep. So we all basically got posted off squadron, and aeromotive came in and took over the maintenance of the, the aircraft as a contract you know, commercialisation to get uh, supposedly save money, get the air force people away from the training planes, and put them onto operational squadrons. So yes. Yep. I went from there to 75 Squadron in 88.
0: Okay. Well, was there much of a difference uh, in the avionics between the CD4B and the CD4E?
1: Uh, Not really, the CD4E was more modern, in terms of the radios were more modern radios, but the basic flight instruments were really no different to the CD4B, pedostatic and basic navigation stuff was pretty similar, just the newer technology, Right. certainly didn't have any of the LCD screens or displays that modern avionics has now, and that's where the CD4E is quite limited to the Air Force now out of date to honest, compared to what they're going to end up flying in the new helicopters
0: right right okay and so you now move on to 75
1: yep so yeah I went there um, it was actually quite a shock resistance I'd never been on 75 prior to that I'd only been on two squadron. and I sort of thought I knew it all and went went to 75 and found out shit I didn't <laughs> <laughs> I found the, the culture and the way of doing it 75 and the tempo to be quite different to what I'd been used to on two squadron. 75 had a, another level of seriousness and professionalism and uh, everything about it was was just another notch up to what I was used to. Yeah. So that took away but
0: getting used to. I, yeah, it was actually quite a shock. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. When I was at a hockey, I was actually quite um, nervous just walking into their hangar. <laughs> it just seemed Joe Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> As they say.
1: No, it was a but I think at the time, for the, certainly for the maintenance flight, it had a lot to do with uh, the maintenance flight commander, the warrant officer, and the flight sergeants for the three trades. Yeah. We called them the Type 5 because they really were a Type 5 and very, set very high standards and expectations of conduct, behaviour, and professionalism. And, and, but that was great, and I didn't have an issue with that. But it was a shock to go. Was, I'd been used to PDS for two years where I was... I was in COOC, Havionics basically, and did what I wanted when I wanted and it was pretty crazy to be honest. Yeah. Night shifts were pretty slack and easy. Go to 75 and a night shift was a night shift, you know, it was quite, quite different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it really was sort of uh, going from a training squadron to a front line fighter squadron.
1: And that was my first experience really. We thought two squadron was a front line unit, it sort of was, but um, it was quite a different feeling between the two squadrons. Yeah, yeah. 75 was definitely much more purposeful and serious about what they were there for. Yeah. Um, and they were really, the Type 5 that were there at the time of the, the management crew for the maintenance, were really trying to lift the maintenance game yeah. to be operational. It, it, it was that time that they started wearing DPMs on deployments instead of just the t-shirt yeah or blue stubbies. Um, they started doing sto training which was so survived to operate so they set up dispersed sites around the airfield and camouflage the aircraft and everyone had to carry guns and NBC gear and so still maintain and service the aircraft but also then have to defend yourselves from the baddies. right it would come over the fence <laughs> so it was yeah, it was really lifting the operational tempo yeah and it was, it was quite a, a shock to the system, but it, it was bloody good looking back at it. The, the standards that I saw there you know, when I was on 75, you know, they were the highest I'd ever seen and, and probably I've never seen anything as professional or um, yeah, well done since. But it was all about just the people that were there, they were, really were good people.
0: Yeah. Who, who was the CEO then?
1: I think was just leaving, no Gavin, sorry Gavin House was just leaving and Herb Keatley just started basically the same day, I started I think Herb Keatley started sort of the same day. Right. And he was the CO right through my time on
0: 75.
1: Okay. Um, so I'd only been there I think a month or so and we had our first deployment to Rockhampton, in Australia which was a tented camp which was a little bit unusual for 75. and again, that was quite a shock to the system. Just to be still pretty new on squadron, trying to find your feet, prove yourself, and then you're thrown into a tented camp environment. Yes. And that threw up a whole lot of the hurdles of its own. With you know, the facilities we had for service the aircraft, we had no hanging, no everything was real basic, and a lot of issues. But um, I think probably that deployment, you know, it, it made me it. it made the difference for me. I'd proved myself and all of a sudden I was accepted onto the squadron. You, know, you had really? to sort of be blooded to, <laughs> to be accepted. So all of a sudden I was no longer the new boy. I was actually part of the, the crew. And it took that, I think, I to do that.
0: There, there must have been a few or a number of um, guys on the maintenance side that you'd already worked with in two squadron, I guess, though, were there? Oh, there
1: was, yeah, you because know, everyone just kept getting posted around a really, reef squadron to the bay and squadron to the bay and some people would go to the 14 squadron and do Mackies for a while and then come back to the Skyhawk or go to AMS which looked after the intermediate level maintenance of the Skyhawks and Mackies so you did. You knew people, some you would worked with before but others you hadn't but you certainly were aware of them and especially through just living and working in hockey socialising and the clubs and messes you knew did know a lot of people which did make it easy to transition in. It wasn't like you were coming from completely outside a, another base. You didn't know a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, first Vanguard deployment was to Singapore in 1998.
0: Now t- tell us what um, Vanguard is all about.
1: So Vanguard was just a name that any of the 75 squadron deployments to Southeast Asia using Skyhawks and even, even before Skyhawks when they had 14 squadron did them with Canberra's, they called them Exercise Vanguard.
2: Yep.
1: Um, and then within Exercise Vanguard, there'd be a number of smaller exercises of different names as well. So Vanguard was sort of the overall exercise name for the eight weeks you're away, yep. but within that eight weeks there'd be probably two or three other smaller exercises, like Exercise Starfish or Five Power Defence Arrangement. But Vanguard was the overall overarching exercise name for it.
0: Yeah, and this was all part of the um, uh, was it SEAC, Was it the uh, it was a five
1: power defence arrangement? Ah, right. Organisation that the the Skyhawks used to deploy under Vanguard Two. So they'd go every year, and um, the Skyhawks deployed to South East Asia every year from nineteen seventy one to two thousand and one, and any. some years they went t- two or three times. Right. Um, and yeah, just exercise with the five power defence arrangement countries which are Australia, New Zealand, UK, Singapore and Malaysia.
0: Right. Okay. And on your first um, Vanguard, um, what sort of uh, exercises were you involved in? Uh,
1: So we were based out of Paya Leber airfield in Singapore which used to be the old civilian airport in Singapore before they opened Changi. So we used to be based out of what was the old actual international terminal.
0: Um, okay.
1: And it was just a, a, a maritime strike exercise part of it, and other parts of it would be a um, air defence exercise with the Singaporeans, or Australians, whoever was there. Um, usually on the way up to Singapore or wherever we were going on a vanguard, we'd have a couple of weeks somewhere in Australia on the way. Usually Darwin. Um, a couple of weeks there exercising with the Australians.
2: Yeah.
1: And then going from there up to Singapore or Malaysia or Thailand, wherever we were going. So the total deployment was sort of six to eight weeks, but it was broken into two or three different locations, so Darwin, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand. Some trips you did three different places over those six or eight weeks, others you stayed one place for most of it.
0: Okay, so Thailand was involved even though they weren't in the five powers? Uh,
1: Yeah, if we went to Thailand, Thailand never came to Singapore or Malaysia for exercises. We used to go to Thailand to one of their bases. Yeah. So when we did that, it was just a New Zealand-Thailand exercise, that part of it. Ah, uh, right, OK. To do with the 5 power, anything else. Right, right. They were just known as Thai Kiwis, and usually just doing air combat against the air forces. mostly what they were.
0: What were they flying at that time?
1: Uh, F-5s, F-16s. 16s OK. Yep. I only went to Thailand once, was 2000. But yeah, we went to Korat, which was a big base the Americans built during the Vietnam War that they used to fly a lot of their force fighters and bombers out and then go and bomb Laos and Cambodia from Thailand. Yep. So it was the facilities looked old. They were very Vietnam era looking. If you imagine what it. 1970s or 60s airfield would look like, well, that's what it looked like still. Right. And the Thais had F5s and F16s there. Okay. But the, the, the Thai, because Thailand's surrounded by borders with other countries, I think it was interesting, their aircraft were always armed with live weapons. you walk along the flight line and the f 16 were always loaded.
0: Wow.
1: <laughs> um, just a different sort of, you know, something we'd never have to worry about in New Zealand. but made you realize that,
0: hey, these guys are actually for real. <laughs> so did they unload them for the exercises? Uh, I think so,
1: you You'd hope, hope so, them. wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd hope they would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they shot us down anyway. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they didn't try And nothing. <laughs> in Singapore, in Malaysia are the same. They're on a high state of readiness all the time with aircraft virtually
0: on you know, readiness, arm fully armed. arm. Yeah. Uh, in, in the exercises that you did up there... Um, who was the dominant sort of uh, winner of the exercises over this?
1: Uh, Singapore was, uh, they were very professional and operated at a, a similar level to Australians. Yeah. Yeah, they got very good equipment, good training systems. And yeah, they, they were right up there.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: the Malaysians, less so, a lot less. And, and we'd have no trouble going against the Malaysians every day and thrashing the pants off them even with the eves. F18s and MiG29s. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: the ties were the same initially, but the ties learned quite quickly, and, and after a couple of weeks, there they would have you know, learned their lessons and mistakes, and, 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 and would be willing to learn. Um, it was quite a cultural thing in Asia, where you know, it's, it's bad to to lose. Yeah. And instead of using that as a positive and to learn, or well, what did I do wrong? They would go away and sulk in the corner, and that used to happen in Singapore and Malaysia, right. rather than coming and go to the debriefing with our pilots and sit down and, and actually try and learn what they did wrong.
2: Yeah,
1: they, they just wouldn't turn up to the debrief. <laughs> They'd storm off on a hunt, oh. saw that in Singapore and in Malaysia. Okay. Um, I mean, it not, might have happened all the time, but certainly it happened. Yeah. Whereas Thailand, they wanted to know right from the start what did I do wrong, how can I avoid that happening. Yeah. And they did, because of that they learned real quick And say so they should have They had F-16s They, they should have been yeah, out turning And out fighting us every fight
0: Yeah um, Okay um, And what were the English um, Or the British uh, flying in these exercises? Uh,
1: they would have usually Tornadoes um, The F-3 interceptor version of the tornado Usually in Singapore for the exercises yeah. And uh, a couple of tanker aircraft BC Okay. And the Royal Navy would usually be there as well with one of their invincible class carriers with the Sea Harriers on them.
0: Okay. It so had quite
1: h- a bit to do with them during those Vanguard exercises. Yep. And the Sea Harriers would be land based at Pileba. With the F 3 Tornadoes, would usually have Pileba as well. So, you know, there'd be a number of other units and squadrons from other countries all there.
0: Yep. How did our um, Skyhawks go up against the uh, Tornadoes and the, the Harriers?
1: Well, the Tornado wasn't a dogfighter, it was an interceptor. Yeah. So it, it was designed for a long range interception, shooting things down a long way away. Yeah. And I mean, it could do that because it had a great radar and good weapons, but in a dogfight, it just could not turn. Right. So, yeah, if it got in a dogfight with anything, it was dead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Um, and the Sea Harrier was like a Skyhawk, it was small didn't have a, you know, within this episode, it had to get in close to, to engage with anything. So, but that was an interesting thing between pre-Kahu with the Skyhawk and post-Kahu. The first time the Sea Harries came to Hake, it was in 1983, just after the Falklands War.
2: Yep.
1: And of course at that time, um, you know, the Sea Harrier pilots just uh, shot down a lot of Skyhawks in the Asian Point Air Force and Navy and came here and thought they were going to do the same to us. And generally they did on a one-on-one just because they had a far better weapon system. They had an air-to-air radar and the latest AIM-9L side and, and we didn't have any of that. So um, that made it difficult. All right. But once we did got Kahu and ended up with a better radar than they had and the same missile but integrated better, um, yeah, we really kicked their butts on Vanguard. Okay. Uh, they learned to have a lot of respect for the Skyhull. Right. Especially in the maritime attack when we'd be, you know, doing strikes on, on these ships. Uh, Royal Navy, I think in particular, had a pretty good respect for
0: 75 Squadron. Right, right. So, um, you would have been still on 75 Squadron when the, um, uh, F-16s were purchased? Yep, and,
1: I was, and I was there when that whole, we were buying them, leasing them, unfolded. Yeah. Um, it was a rumour that had been floating around sort of for a few weeks and then all of a sudden, just before Christmas, it was officially announced by the Minister of Defence I think it was, or Prime Minister, that we were buying or we leasing 28 F-16 and we couldn't believe it it was like, oh my god, this is unbelievable but it was yeah, it was the deal of the century and once we saw what it evolved and how much it was going to cost, and we went wow, this is incredible, we're back in with the Americans, you know, yeah it really did look like this was their olive branch to us. We accepted and we were going to be back in in full. Yeah. And then there was an election. (laughs) So in that period between it being signed up, people were posted to the states to start preparing for getting aircraft in the service. The training positions in the states had all been advertised. Technician positions advertised to go to the state to do all the system training on the F 16. Yep. But they never announced who had got the positions because it all sort of happened about the time of the election. So they held off. Um, and then the election, Labour won, Helen Clark came in, and then one of the things on her pledge card for the election was to review the F 16 deal, which she did, and the rest is history.
0: Yes, yes, unfortunately. So yeah, it
1: was the best of times and the worst of times in terms of being on an operational squadron.
0: Yeah. And of course when she decided to can the deal, it wasn't um, actually known at that time that the whole combat wing was going to go, was it?
1: No, and they, even she made great pains to say, no, this isn't an indication of the future of the Skyhawks, they've still got years left in them, blah blah blah. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't take long for other politicians to be saying things that weren't quite so Rosie, in particular, I remember Jim Anderson and Keith Locke and other people that were associated with that coalition government at the time, they were all saying, no, nah, it's gone, so she can get rid of it. You know, and sure enough, it was. That you know, was just just playing, playing people out. So some people could see the writing on the wall, especially amongst the pilots. So a number of pilots resigned from all of the squadrons, 75, 2 and 14.
2: Yeah.
1: They were being offered pretty lucrative contracts in Saudi Arabia to go and train pilots over there for British Aerospace, so they all went. Yep. And we lost a huge amount of experience around 2000, which they never, the squadrons never recovered from that, and I guess Muz Nelson's accident at Nara was sort of the culmination of, and end result of all that, where we just didn't have enough qualified flying instructors and experienced pilots, and those on the left just had to carry same workload as without staff. And he, he had this accident probably because of that.
0: This is the root cause of that, I believe. Alright, oh, right, okay. Uh, the, the morale must have just dropped so much.
1: Yeah, it did. I went from such a high, like the Christmas of 1999, December 99, that? Or was it when the E16 deal was announced. Um, on 75, I mean, it was just a buzzing, humming place. Everyone yep. was walking around with their heads in the air and their shoulders back, looking forward to the future. And, you know, I know kids that were coming out of school went, shit, I'm going to join the Air Force. I want to work on these F-16s. I want to fly F-16s. I mean, for the Air Force, recruiting and PR, it was it was fantastic. They were the um, front line unit. You know, that's what people aspired to, even if you didn't end up working or flying on them. And, but that was whatever it's saw in the recruiting ads, you know. Yeah. And it was the same internally. It was a huge morale boost to the Air Force generally, as well as you were in a Hake. It looked like there was a future in a haki of, of, of being in the fast jet business. Yeah. So then to have that mat ripped out from underneath you a few short months later, yeah, it was horrible. And then even got more horrible, a year down track when Helen... So
0: to get rid of the whole week of yeah and the Air Force had already taken quite a knock um, even before that with the closure of Wigurum, which was um, you know for me personally I was down there and um, having that base closed the the oldest aerodrome in the country and and the, the you know the home and the heart of the air Force um, to have that closed and everyone forced to move north um, that was bad enough but for you know to have the front line taken off uh, I was out of the Air Force by that time but it just it was gutting
1: yep it was gutting for those of us that were part of it because yeah. everything we'd put into it you know, all the sacrifices we'd all made personally over 30 years of working on the squadrons to it everyone went there and improved the place you know and they never stood still it was just a, a culture of continuous improvement yeah pilots and Grand crew so we were always improving things, the way we operated, we, we, we did maintenance we, we, and we were always trying to do it better yeah. and smarter and, and to see all that just thrown away, uh, it was just sickening.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And of course you um, ended up becoming a bit of a um, public face of, uh,
1: yeah, of the Air Force at that time, and didn't you? I he? was so pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> Not with it so much the F-16 deal being cancelled, I could live with that, but when they... They're going to get rid of the whole e combat force. There was a, a few of us at Harkia who were quite open and outspoken about it. Yeah. And, uh, normally that wouldn't be tolerated if you're in uniform you were not to say things or to speak. But no one actually ever pulled me aside and said, don't. Yeah. It was almost tolerated. Um, we weren't being openly in the media or anything, but we were passing things on to people and <laughs> yeah. saying what we thought and not being quoted but saying what a stupid thing this was. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, once I got out, well, I didn't hold back.
0: Yes, yeah. And then there was the, uh, the, the very elongated debacle of um, storing the aircraft, trying to sell them.
1: Yeah, well, that's what I did when I you know, got made redundant in 2001. It was the 18th of November 2001, so I'm just coming up in two days to my 10-year anniversary of being more redundant. Wow. Um, I mean, they, they asked for volunteers to go, and I said, yes, I'll go, because you know, I was that pissed off. Yeah. I couldn't see myself working on bloody Iroquois again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was done nearly 18 years, so I wasn't too far away from 20 anyway. But, but yeah. I, who knows, I might have been made redundant anyway. There were people that didn't want to go that did have to go just because, to make up the numbers, the government wanted 350 people gone by December, so yeah. they got rid of 350 people. Most were volunteers, but there were some that were compulsory.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, DJ2 it was called, Get Rid of Them. Um, so yeah, I, I left and Safe Air were given the job of looking after the Skyhawks and Mackies at A here and Woodburn until they were sold. So they were looking for people to do that, because they had no Mackey experienced people at all, and no, no presence at a hockey. They had people at a Woodburn, but no one at a hockey. So yeah. I applied for that and got a job looking after the school and Mackeys, initially just working part-time, because I was studying at Massey University and was finishing off a diploma. So I did that sort of part-time uh, for a while, and then eventually went full-time with Safe Air in 2002. So I was you know, safe here at the hackier when the initial buyers all came around looking at the aircraft and were taken flying in them and we were all taken out for dinner and drinks by American companies and promised jobs and la di a di Yeah. Nothing ever came of it but, you know, I left in the end of October 2002 because, yeah, I couldn't really see a future and it didn't, didn't look like the sale go- was going anywhere in a hurry as it turned out, it hasn't,
0: so 10 uh, years later. Yeah, 10 years Christ later, this week they've announced after that... By safety, uh, yeah. but they've just announced that they've sold them, haven't they? Well, they've
1: sold yeah, the eight remaining supposedly. Yeah. But, coincidentally, every election for the last three elections, they've announced
0: that. <laughs> yeah. First time in 2005, so yeah, we'll see when they actually leave New Zealand or believe it. Another result of uh, the um, your long career with the Skyhawks has been your book.
1: Yep, that's been a labour of love for 17 years, Um, I guess give you a bit of a brief history on it, but in 1994 um, the late Mr Bill Taylor, who was an ex-aircraft trade sergeant at Ahakia was in the mess, sergeant at Ahakia, and we were having a beer and Bill said, hey do you know February next year's, sorry May next year, it's 25 years since the Skyhawks arrived? Yeah, it is too, and he knew I was pretty keen on the Skyhawks, I mean, that stage I was still working in Havionics, it wasn't quite a PTS at that stage, yeah. and, I, and we sort of between us said, hey, we should have a reunion, and he said, yeah, let's have a reunion. So from that beer discussion, we kicked off an organising committee, got uh, support from the chiefs around the hockey the base commander and above, and, and started organising a reunion, and it just snowballed from there, and as part of that, I said, shit, we should um, write a and make a, deep, a video on, on the 25 years of Skyhawk service so that was, well, was my job to organise that so I organised a company in Auckland called De- Demand Television Productions, Terry Garman's way to produce a video which is the video that came out um, from A4 Skyhawk the video which you can still buy on DVD I think
2: yep.
1: and I, I um, rang up Ross McPherson from New Zealand Wings down at Otaki and, Invited him to a meeting at a hacky to discuss writing a book because I knew he published books on aviation subjects. And we sat in uh, Wing Commander Iggy Woods' office uh, at Strike Wing headquarters. He was uh, O.C. Strike Wing, I think it was called then. Yep. And Iggy was one of the best storytellers of Skyhawk tales I've ever met. And he, he just sat there telling the stories, all these stories, war stories about things he'd done in the Skyhawk, And Rosslyn first just sat there with his mouth open. And jaw on the floor and he says we've got to write a book <laughs> he says I'm going to see the bank manager on my way home you've got to do this, so that's how it started
2: Right
1: So Ross engaged um, journalists at Wellington who used for other work before Nick Cleef Frampton, to start researching through the archives and the information in defence equal at Wellington about the whole the history of why we bought skulls and not phantoms or anything else Yep. and I started collecting photographs to, to illustrate a book and then we had in February 1995 had the reunion of the Haki which was a huge success um, and the intention was that shortly after that the book would be published we were going to sort of take photographs of the reunion and that would be the end of the book the last chapter Yep. but then shortly after that Ross McPherson uh, got sick and weeks he was dead uh, cancer. Yeah. So that was a, a shock, a huge blow and the book sort of just sat there in the back burner with New Zealand Wings, which was a business that he ran. And it sat like that for many years, um, not going anywhere and in the meantime Nick kept updating it, researching, getting more information, doing more interviews with people and, and I kept feeding him information and Collecting more photos, and that went on and on and on for well, until about 2000 and when we were getting F16. And um, these little Wings said in the end that they just didn't want to produce the book, couldn't afford it. So said go and find someone else. So they spent the next you know, few years trying to find another publisher to, to take it on, but
2: yep. not much
1: success. Um, and then in the 2001. Skyhawks were, were chopped. So that was sort of, we thought, the end of the story, um, was, we'll wrap it up. Um, but we sort of had ten years of waiting before the bloody things were disposed of, and they're still not disposed of. So so that was the, the 17 years. Ten years of that was waiting for something to happen with the disposal of the aircraft to really finish that last chapter. Right. But as it turned out, that was really fortuitous because enabled so much more material to come to light um, the views of people and stories and photographs that came out of the woodwork, which just resulted in the end product that we've produced is just so much better for it because it took it 10 years. It's, it's been a long, frustrating process, but it's certainly been worth it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And,
1: back, um, I've heard from everyone that's read it, that they just think it's a fantastic tribute story. And so everyone says how easy it is to read, which is good to hear as well, because you never know, you think you might be a bit too technical or making it too difficult to read for a book that big, but no, everyone says lame to the laymen that never worked on them, so say, no, it's really
0: easy to read, it's really good. So. Right. Well, I've just heard so many um, amazing accolades uh, from all quarters of, of people who have you know, got the book, and um, it's a real tribute um, to the to the aircraft and also... Um, to the work that you and Nick have done as well
1: yeah oh yeah I know it's, I think for a, it's, you know Nick and I the first book of different people had published and I think we should both be really happy with it proud I mean I know I. Ain't, so. yeah
0: Yeah.
1: and it sold very well Like the first thousand copies sold out in, a mo- uh, in four months so that was for a book the size of it and the cost of it to sell out the whole print run in four months is pretty exceptional in New Zealand.
0: that's pretty remarkable and congratulations on that
1: yeah so that's yeah, that's been a surprise, a pleasant surprise at that. So, so there's another 500 now being printed.
0: And um, tell the uh, listeners how they can get hold of a copy.
1: Uh, well, most bookshops, I think, now stock it, or certainly if they don't, they can get it. Um, like Whit calls stock it, and if they haven't got any in stock, just give them the details. The title's Skyhawks, the history of the r of Skyhawk, by like Don Sims and Nick Lee Franton, um, and I'm sure they'll be able to pull it up on their system.
0: Yep. And or the pub- you can
1: go and order it directly from the publisher, which is Wilson Scott Publishing. Um, Wilson is W I L L S O N, Scott is C O T T Publishing, and they are a publisher in New Zealand in Christchurch that published military history books just on New Zealand military history. Right. Um, so you're supporting a New Zealand business, New Zealand company. It's not an overseas company, publishing company.
0: And also importantly, it's a Christchurch company. Yeah,
1: and we're yeah because we're a Christchurch-based company, we've been through these earthquakes. And it was all right in the middle of producing the book, and um, that that caused its own challenges because um, Quentin Wilson, who was doing the, the layouts of all the pages and, and all that, and his, his his life's been turned upside down by the earthquake, and we've had to work w- with him and around that. So, as it has for all of us down here.
2: Yes, yeah.
1: It was another nice thing to get published just for that, to, to have some good news for Christchurch, something that's yeah, been made right here in New Zealand Christchurch.
0: Right, right. Um, and we'll put a, a link up um, to the publishing yeah, house exactly. uh, on, on, the, on the website.
1: Well, like, I think, you know, f- through the publicity of the forum, I think, I think a lot of sales have resulted through that, which has been fantastic to have that platform.
0: Well that, that's really good and the, the thing I must say too is over the years since you've been on the forum um, virtually every Skyhawk related question has been answered in full by you and that's fantastic to have such an, uh, an expert on there.
1: Yeah, well um, being involved in it you do pick up a lot of junk information that seems to stick in the back of your mind, <laughs> that I can drag out, drag out from the back of my head. <laughs> People still ask how something works and I can still visualise it in, in like a schematic diagram and probably
0: even draw
1: a circuit diagram for some of it. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty amazing. I
0: haven't worked on them for 10 years. And another um, aspect of your um, uh, involvement in Air Force history is you're now a guide at the RNZAF Museum or the Air Force Museum yeah, of New that Zealand. that was something I wanted to do
1: when I moved to Christchurch in 2006, but I wanted to get this book finished before I committed to anything else, because you know, time's precious. The book was taking up a lot of time, so when the book was finished, I said, "Right, now I'm going to go find something else." And so that was it. Yeah, I've been doing the old volunteer guides on a Saturday at the museum now for I suppose four or five months.
0: Right. right. I'm really
1: enjoying it. Yeah, it's great to be back in, in the old military aviation arena and being able to tell people and show people aircraft that I know yeah, quite a lot about it. It's bit scary that I can go into the hangar in there and say, well, I worked on that, that, and that. <laughs> you know, there's an Iroquois Skyhawk and an air trainer in there. That, you know, I've worked on all of them, and I've actually flown into them as well, the air trainer and the Skyhawks. So. Right. But it's, it's being able to tell people that and tell them stories about it, and it's, it's really cool.
0: Have you had to do a bit of um, boning up on the other aircraft yeah, types? Yeah,
1: you know, I've always been interested in aircraft, so i, I had a lot of it back of my mind but it did need a refresh but they've got a really good induction to the program where they give you a booklet with all the history of the different aircraft and how many we had and and give you yeah so it didn't take me long to be able to do the guided tours to the restoration because I already knew most of it yeah but it's one of the more enjoyable parts of being there is, is working with the other guides and talking with them because they come from all different backgrounds and experiences and Feeding off each other's knowledge and then you learn something new and that's been really interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I can um, imagine.
1: I mean, I'm only seeing the people that I directly work with on a Saturday, because I mean, that's all I can do in terms of my time, but it must be great for the ones that are retired and they some of them do three or four days a week Yeah. Um, and they're working with all different groups and people. It, it's a great little community, the volunteers there. You've got the volunteers in the hangar, the Black Hand Gang doing work as well as the volunteer guides at the front, you know, showing people around and answering questions.
0: Right. And I believe that they're always looking for um, new guides and, and new volunteers. Yeah, um,
1: there's, there's never enough, because a lot of them are ex-Air Force people retired, and, you know, they're, they're getting a hold of, especially the World War II veterans. There's not too many of them left guiding there. Yeah. And they were originally sort of, the guides were all ex-World War II veterans, but over time they've passed on or got unwell and can't continue so they've had to try and encourage other people to come in. So some of the guides have no previous military or aviation knowledge or experience. They just want to volunteer and do something for the community so Wigram is a place you can do that. And they have a good training programme to bring people up to speed with being a guide. and there's all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life there from really young people like there's a girl on the Saturdays she's only six but she just wanted to do something different you know well, that's fantastic yeah, that's great that for a 16 year old yeah that's great you know putting, giving things back to the community and it's not all just about you know, me 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 like it is with so many young people
0: yeah yeah and I guess you must meet a lot of interesting uh, tourists passing through yeah that's
1: the other interesting thing is, is where people come from their backgrounds you do you meet some you have really interesting people yeah you know you've met Space shuttle pilots through to <laughs> you know, World War Two fighter pilots. You, know, you meet wow. them all. It's a great, great place to meet people. Fantastic. And I love getting kids coming up that are genuinely interested, want to know stuff. You know, there's so much you can show and tell them, and you just watch their eyes bulging and think, well, that was me you know, 30, 40 years ago. You know? Yeah, yeah. They just, they just got that love and passion in them already for aviation. Brilliant. And they do fantastic kids' birthday parties there. We don't get involved in running them, but we just see them. Yeah. And the things they do with the kids is just so much fun for them. I can just imagine me as a kid having done that; would have been just the bee's knees. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: They dress them all up in flying overalls and give them dog tags and march them and do some drill and, <laughs> and then they um, take them down to the hangar and put them in the end over and they open the parachute door and they will jump out pretending they're parachuting. and They have dart throwing competitions. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they do a great um, kids' program at that
0: museum, really great. Yeah, and they run the holiday programs and stuff like that yeah, too, don't they? Yeah, and each
1: holiday they do something different, sort yeah. of a different theme. Yeah,
0: really, really clever people that are running that. Yeah, uh, and also um, another aspect of it, which you you may not um, get too much um, involvement as a guide, but I know as a researcher um, that you have, uh, that's the archives, they're fantastic as well. Yeah,
1: well I've I had a bit to do with it. Researching stuff for the Skyhawk book.
0: Yeah,
1: and they do have a fantastic library and archive area there, and they're so helpful. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah I, got, got, I was a bit embarrassed because I was feeling like I was getting a bit too regular and persistent with my request but they get it all the time from people, and they're just yeah, so open and helpful.
0: I, I love the enthusiasm there. They, they just they want to know more about your project, and um, they you know they really want to get involved, really want to help, um, yeah, which is great. It's
1: nice, a book, and when it's finally out, you know, I, I gave them a copy, free copy of the book, cause yeah. it's nice to give them something back that then they can put into their library,
2: yeah,
1: or they can all pass around their staff to read, you
0: know, yeah, absolutely,
1: to see the finished product of their hard work, really,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, we couldn't get half the photos and information without their help. You know,
0: that's right, and uh, and you know the um, amount of stuff that's been collected over the last um, thirty forty years um, by the museum.
2: It's oh, just sure. mind boggling yeah, the, the and they got there.
0: Yeah, it's just absolutely amazing. And and the um the stuff that comes out uh, even that's you know maybe the staff didn't even know they had when you asked for a specific topic. Yeah, well, and, that's
1: what they did from doing the skyhawk research, you know, I'd never been able to find any photos of the Skyhawks being made in the Douglas factory. Ah. <coughs> and i approached you know, Douglas way back, Donald Douglas it was then, and Boeing now, and no, there's no photos of them being made, just photos of them getting test flown. Right. And then I went to the Air Force Museum and said to Matthew Sullivan, you know, i really like to see some photos, and he, he says, oh, well, I'll pull out all the negatives for that period and we'll just have to go through them, looking at them on like a microfish reader. And he was helping me, he was looking at some, I was looking at some, and then all of a sudden he says, hey, have a look at these. And they were, he had them, he had a whole set of negatives of them being built Wow! The factory, which he'd never seen before, didn't know he even had them. Wow. <laughs> so it was only from doing that, you know, looking that
0: we found them. Wow. And uh, that reminds me of another um, story. When I was researching there last time, um, I had, I was, because I'm writing uh, the history of the General Reconnaissance Squadrons and I had asked for anything on the territorial um, squadrons uh, which flew general reconnaissance before the war and, and the early stages of the war. And um, Michelle, the archivist there, uh, went out the back and got a whole lot of stuff. And she goes, uh, I don't know what this scrapbook is. It's not actually in our computer or anything. And, mm. and um, But it looks like it might have territorial stuff in it. And that was the first thing I was, that morning I started looking at. It. And I was turning a few pages and I thought, wow, oh, this is pretty good. And then I turned another page and here's a letter stuck in it that says this is to confirm that you are uh, officially made the Chief of Air Staff of the RNJDF and I thought what? And it was addressed to um, Sir Rafe Cochrane, oh. and and signed by um, Tom Barrow the um, uh, Air Secretary and I thought what's this doing out here? And then I flicked a few more pages and here's an airline ticket for Union Airways um, made out to Rafe Cochrane. and uh, then I suddenly realised that all these uh, cuttings were all about Rafe Cochrane and, and his development of the Air Force. And there was a scrapbook that had been made during his time of building the Air Force up. It was his own personal scrapbook. Incredible. And, and I, I called Michelle over and said, it. yeah, she, she had no idea. Yeah. And, and, and we were both so excited. It was brilliant. And, and it was really helpful for my um, research as well. So, um, you know, there's little gems like that in there. It's just great. Um, we probably should uh start winding this up a bit, but um I will just turn um to the forum. Um you're a moderator on the forum and um a well known, you know, participant and member. Um and uh, with these recordings, uh any forum members I'll ask them what their five favorite threads are on the forum. Have you had a think and Yeah, well, I
1: guess anything to do with Skyhawks have been a favourite and I've probably started and contributed a few bit to them, but you know, there's always things that have come out during the research for the book, through those threads there's been a lot of photos and contact, I've made contact with people that I wouldn't have been able to make contact with otherwise so I'd have to say that anything anything to do with the Skyhawk was just gold for me because I made some really good contacts and got me some some very special photos from people's personal collections.
0: Right, right.
1: So that would be number one. Um, The Bristol Freighter L thread would be a close second and maybe would be a first if I thought about it. Yeah, that was just a, such an amazing story. Oh. As well as, and someone's got to write a book using that. That's red because it's just gold.
0: Absolutely, yeah. it was so entertaining and so interesting at the same time.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, you know when he was right into it every day. There was updates, and it was yeah. like, I have to go there and look is there an update yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, just, I don't know but, other people would like that too. Yeah, exactly. And, and it was when he'd been doing his, his own engine on the trailer. That was again just incredibly interesting. Yeah. Yep. And he's a very good storyteller. <laughs> he is. And he's
0: a very, very talented engineer. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but he can tell a bloody story. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, what else? Oh, anything in the preservation area. Now, that's another area that's always interesting. Stuff that's coming out of here. Yeah. Um, you're resurrecting harbours from scrap. And those sort of stories that are just so New Zealand and saving wreck- it wrecks back Forties and fifties, that are now. If we didn't have those people that did that, well, what would we have now? We wouldn't have anything.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So yeah, yeah there's, there's lots of that. Oh, that history, and when the photos come out of the woodwork that you've never seen before, that's just so amazing.
0: It is. That's one of the great benefits of the forum, as far as I'm concerned. And yeah,
1: and people are so generous with their photos as well. Like the internet's so bad for copyright abuse. You know?
0: Yeah.
1: It, it does take courage to put your photos out there because, you guarantee, if you booze someone will punch them but yeah, you know, it's all about sharing. I think everyone that's on there realises that and they've seen how other people have shared
0: photos and yeah. just snowballed and yeah. Yeah, I think too if you have a rare photo or you find a rare photo and you put it up there, um, the reaction that you get is really satisfying as well oh, Re- yeah, when other people right. just can't believe it. and, yeah, no,
1: and there's, there's so many characters sitting there lurking in the background and it's not until someone puts something up that it's Triggers them into actually posting. There's a lot of people just sit and read, don't actually post, but sometimes yep. something will trigger them and away they go. Yep, exactly. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's a whole new you know, view to something
1: or. Yeah, yeah. From uh, a different perspective, and from their experience, it's great.
0: It's actually really interesting that almost every topic that comes up, whether it's civilian or military aviation, um, any any type of aviation, there's always someone out there that had some sort of personal involvement or maybe their father did or something like yeah. that. It's a, it's a real uh, interconnected web of people, isn't it?
1: Yep. And that's what the forum's been great for, is making friendships. You know? Yeah. And you know, we have our Christ, Christchurch gathering a couple of times a year or um, you know, we go to the air shows and we try and catch up. And it's been fantastic for that. It's
0: yep, great. absolutely.
1: It's, it's a whole little social network on its own. Right?
0: It, is. it is. It is. It's great.
1: And it's reacquainted really a lot of you know, sort of ex Air Force people that have lost touch with each other. You know, I've got back in touch with people through there and, and I've seen lots of other people doing it as well.
0: Yep, absolutely. And um, and it's not just the Air Force, there's a lot of uh, the um, top dressing people who are yep. making contact with each other and various uh, other aspects like that. So.
1: Yeah, and we get the overseas contributions, especially some of those photographers that have just posted absolutely stunning photographs of the air shows. <laughs> yeah so lucky to do
0: for they're doing it on our forum it's just a privilege it's it's amazing that and uh, i think it was um i was at a marker and i I was uh, with dave mcdonald and um he introduced me to a couple of people and when he said my name uh he these people said oh i read your forum one of them was german and one was french Uh, and i was like why do you read it and they're like oh because it's really interesting and it's really good and i was like that's the first time I realized there were people overseas, you know, reading the forum. And um, now you're looking, there's people from Britain, there's people from Canada, Australia, mm. um, Singapore, all over the place. America. No, it is, it's
1: really good. Yeah. yeah. No, I wish I had more time to spend on it. I it's, it's like can't spend all day, every night on it. So no, no. I try and look every day at the, you know, the threads that I'm interested in, but you know, sometimes work your way and you don't get to look
0: for a few days but it's always yeah you know, one of the first websites I go to when I've got the computer on. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and there's always something new every day.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well Don, um, this has been a very, very interesting chat with you and um, I wanna say thank you very much for partaking in this interview. No, well, it's another whole chapter in the forum as
1: well with we'll a see how this goes way to or, or try something
0: different to get more information yeah. it, it is and it, um, I think it's it will a add, a, it'll add a bit more um, personality to the um, the people on the forum you, you get to meet them in person as such yeah. if you know what I mean um, and um, I mean even tonight even though I've known you for years I've learned a few things about you <laughs> I didn't I didn't even realise that you had uh, been at PTS and stuff well, like well, that, so. to keep that quiet. oh come on it's one but, of the oh, I did
2: actually really
0: when when I was at Wigurum that used to be known as the sharp end
1: yeah. <laughs> Well I you know I a hack here it wasn't, but it was the blunt end yeah. It was, yeah really when I got told I had to go there it was like, oh <laughs> <laughs> But it was, a, yeah, it was a means to end, they promised you, know, you go there and do your two years be a good boy and then you can go to 75 so that yeah. was my motivation Yeah. As it worked out I actually really enjoyed it yeah. Well yeah. I'd got a lot of flying air flying air trainers went away with the checkers, we'd you know, take off from Hacker and fly wherever, Auckland or Christchurch or Westport, and we, you know, the pilot would say, yeah, you can fly it, there you go, and then you want to learn to learn how to formation fly, oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> get one of the aircraft to fly nice and straight and steady, and he t- taught me how to, you now. I learned how to formation fly, in wow. all different position, so, no, you know, fantastic, oh, yeah, you know. getting paid to do it,
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's great. Oh, well, um, yeah. Thanks once again, and it's um, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on as a guest. Uh, take care.